0: Welcome to the Growing Out Podcast. My name is Mallory, I'm your host, and thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. I think I have filmed this episode like six or seven times at this point because this episode is a little different. And I know that I say that at the beginning of every single one of my episodes, but just hear me out for a second. I'm a little conflicted because this episode is actually for a school project, and that is the main reason why I'm creating this. Obviously, I sat down and I looked at the requirements, and that is how I am spearheading today's episode. But I'm really proud of the work that I've done here, and I couldn't just keep it to myself, so I'm also going to be sharing this as an episode on the Growing Up podcast. I hope that's okay with everybody, (laughs) and I hope you enjoy regardless of what the intentions are for this episode. So in today's episode, I'm going to be discussing my ecological worldview, which in casual terms is basically how I view the relationship between humans and nature, and where I think I play a role in all of that. I'm going to tell you a story from my childhood of this place that I like to call Coyote Park, and how I think that shaped my ecological worldview today. I'm gonna discuss two readings from the course I'm taking and how they have opened my eyes to what my ecological worldview is and how they are continuing to help me figure out where I sit in all of this climate change and environment and nature discussions that we're having. I'm also super excited to welcome my first guest to the podcast. I'm gonna interview my mom. I'm going to ask her about her childhood experiences with nature, and how climate change has changed over her lifetime. Then we'll conclude, discuss everything as a whole, and hopefully by the end of this, you'll have learned something or are able to figure out your own ecological worldview. But for now, sit back, relax, maybe grab a cup of tea, and let's get right into it. I want to start by telling you a story. I was born and raised in Niagara Falls, Canada, and I spent a lot of my formative years in Niagara-on-the-Lake. My grandparents owned a bed and breakfast there for the first few years of my life. So almost every single day, I would go down to Niagara-on-the-Lake with my mom and my brother, and we would just hang out with my grandparents. And this one place that we would go to all the time was this park that was around the corner from their house. And I, to this day, still don't know the name of this park, but I like to call it Coyote Park. And basically, I distinctively remember we would walk up, it was on a dead end street, I don't think many people visited this. And to be honest, I don't even think it was supposed to be a park, I just don't think they had a use for the space. So you would walk up on the sidewalk and it would kind of, you know, cut off at some point because was a dead end street. And up and down each side of the sidewalk, there were these buttercup flowers. And my grandma told me that if you would pick a flower and you would hold it under someone's chin, if it glowed yellow, then that means that they loved butter. So I would, every single day, like the innovative person I was, I would pick a buttercup, I would hold it up under everyone's chin, and I would tell them, you love butter, and you love butter. Like I was Oprah or something. And uh, I remember almost every day I would get into an argument with my grandpa who claimed he didn't love butter, and I was a little scientist as a little toddler, and I told my grandpa, well, your chin is glowing yellow, so you love butter, and you're lying to me, and that was a daily occurrence, and then when you walk up to this park, there's no formal path into the park. It's actually just this big green space of overgrown grass, and weeds, and dandelions, and I remember we distinctively picked the dead dandelions, and we'd blow to watch the little seedlings you know go in the wind and it wasn't very even the grass it was there were some hills you know some slight hills here and there some ditches here and there at the front of the park there was this little city building and to this day I don't know what it was but I believe it was something to do with like water measuring or something to do with plumbing and we would see the city workers go in there sometimes and then at the very back of the park there was this sewing set and a little jungle gym, there was a slide, and this tire swing that I would spin on until I felt dizzy and wanted to throw up. And surrounding the whole park were these super tall Christmas-looking trees. And because I was, you know, three or four at the time, we would get up super early, we would drive down to Niagara-on-the-Lake, and we'd be at that park at like seven or eight in the morning. (laughs) That's so much energy back then, I wish I had that now. And sometimes we would see these coyotes. There would be a mama coyote and her two or, you know, two or three or whatever the season was. Her babies were with her. And they'd never bother us, and we'd never bother them. In fact, my mom would always be terrified whenever they came around because they were our size, and they could definitely hurt us if they wanted to. But it was this silent acknowledgment between us. We would be on the playground. They'd be, you know, doing the perimeter of the park, and we'd just be looking at each other. And we'd have this silent conversation between us, and it was really beautiful looking back on it. And I just remember being in awe. No matter how many times I saw those coyotes, I was in awe. And looking back, it was a beautiful exchange between two different species who were both there just to play super early in the morning at the park with their kids. And to this day, I call that park, Coyote Park. I actually went back to visit Coyote Park last summer or two summers ago. I took my boyfriend there. I wanted to show him kind of where I grew up and what helped me to become the person I am today. I remember driving down that street, that dead-end street, and pulling over and just feeling empty as I looked out on what was Coyote Park. There was no swing set. There was no tire swings. There was no grass, no weeds, no buttercups. It was just this mud pit. And at the center, in the front, was that little city building, and I just looked out on this, and I felt so sad, like I had lost a childhood friend. I was looking out on this place that I had so many amazing memories, and I realized I could never take my kids there one day and tell them about the coyotes, and I don't know what they're going to do with Coyote Park. To be honest, I can't bring myself to research it. It hurts too much, (laughs) but... I think about those coyotes sometimes, and I think, where are they playing now? I tell you this story because in hindsight, I think it had a great impact on what my ecological worldview is today. I think there are two parts to my ecological worldview, and I have a hard time explaining it still because this is something that I'm just learning about myself. For this project, I actually didn't even think about what my ecological worldview was. I just kind of went about my days with my opinions and never took some time to self-reflect. So I'm really grateful for this project to be able to do this. But like I said, I think there are two parts to my ecological worldview. And the first part greatly relates to Coyote Park. The first part is what I would define as romanticism. It's my love for nature my passion and my empathy for nature, my willingness to treat nature as a friend, to learn from those coyotes, to learn from the trees and the buttercups, and to form a general relationship with them. I describe this as childlike and a little bit naive because I think this stems from that relationship I had with Coyote Park. The second part to my ecological worldview is something that I think I have formed as I've grown up, and I call this my problem-solving side. I think this stems from my environmental science background, my need to fix things, my belief that technology can save us. The better research that we do, the more we understand the earth, the more we can help it. I think this is a more mature perspective because this is something that I have formed in my last few years of university. But I think this can also be ignorant. It can also look at the earth as a pawn, not as a friend. And I think these two parts of my ecological worldview help each other. Neither one by themselves can get things done. Neither one by themselves can save the planet or can take care of it. But together we can make change between these two parts of my ecological worldview. I'm greatly appreciative of my romanticism side because it connects me to my childhood. It reminds me of the experiences I've had in nature and it encourages me to continue to form that friendship with nature. And I'm grateful for my problem solving side because it's motivated, it wants to see change. It takes my romanticism and does something good with it. So I can't sit here and give you one label for my ecological worldview because I think it's more than that. I think it's on a spectrum between these two binaries that I'm constantly swaying back and forth and I'm constantly learning about and I think that's important. I don't think any of us can sit here and definitively say this is my ecological worldview because it should be ever-changing and it should also always be growing. Part of this assignment is to reflect on a couple of the readings from the course and how they relate to your ecological worldview. And my relation to the environment, my environmental work and my career, my academic career for environmental studies and sciences started with a book. It started in my EMV 100 class, Introduction to Environmental Studies, where our textbook was called For Earth's Sake, Toward a Compassionate Ecology, written by Professor Stephen Sharper. And I have discussed this book on my platforms before. If you are listening um, to this podcast, you know I've discussed this book before. And I've also discussed this concept before. So the chapter I'm going to be reading from is The Rise of Nature Deficit Disorder. It refers to American journalist and author Richard Louvre, who coined the term nature deficit disorder to describe the physical and psychological impacts or symptoms that kids are experiencing because they are not spending enough time in nature. And I highlighted this quote three years ago when I first read this chapter, and I think it's super important, so I'm gonna share it with you right now. A kid today can likely tell you about the Amazon rainforest, but not about the last time he or she explored the woods in solitude or lay in a field, listening to the wind and watching clouds move." That's from page 33 of For Earth's Sake. I love this quote because it captures exactly how I feel about Coyote Park. It makes me sad that kids will not get to see those coyotes, will not get to experience those buttercups or that tire swing or those trees. It makes me sad that we are doing a disservice to our children by surrounding them by pavement and concrete and buildings and people, instead of birds and trees and water and weeds. And I really resonate with that quote when I was reflecting on, you know, where my environmental activism started and I thought about Coyote Park, I immediately thought about this quote because it's exactly how I feel. Kids might be able to do a project on that park one day and to say, oh yeah, that condominium used to be a park. And that's all they'll know about it, but they won't know the deep-rooted love and fond memories that I and so many other people have of that place. The second reading I wanted to refer to was an article by Professor David Orr, and it's called, What is Education For? And i just wanted to read you this paragraph because it it's something that i think about a lot and it says the plain fact is that the planet does not need more successful people but it does desperately need more peacemakers healers restorers storytellers and lovers of every shape and form it needs people who live well in their places it needs people of moral courage willing to join the fight to make the world habitable and humane. And these needs have little to do with success as our culture has defined it. And that paragraph spoke directly to the second part of my ecological worldview. Because while problem solving is a good quality to have, it can become ignorant when we just think that science and technology can save us from climate change because that's just not true. And this quote really highlighted that to me. Yes, it's important to do research. It's important to make policies. It's important to develop technology and educate people about what's going on. But just as much as we need to do that, we also need to encourage people to spend time outside, to practice grounding techniques with nature, to just sit there Close your eyes and listen to the birds have conversations because how are we supposed to help something or save something in our anthropocentric way of thinking if we don't know it if we don't build a relationship with it so i think climate action goes far beyond science like technology and policies it's about love and compassion and empathy and I really like that art, that paragraph from that article because it helped me to recognize and remember my romantic view of nature. And it helped me to recognize that I can't just be a problem solver. I also need to be a lover and a healer and a restorer and right now a storyteller. I am super excited for the next part of this podcast, because I finally get to hear someone else's perspective on everything that's going on, instead of just hearing my voice talk for a little bit. So without further ado, my mom, Amanda. Okay, are you ready? Okay. So welcome, my mom, to the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself?
1: I'm Amanda Furlong. I'm Mallory's mom.
0: That's my mom. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a few questions, and you can answer them in whatever way you want. So can you tell me about a time from your childhood that shaped your view of nature? I think
1: my most memorable um, experience with nature was when I was younger, when I was between the ages of five and eight walking home from school. Um, I always took the route that took me down by the ravine and there was a huge willow tree there because I loved to play in the ravine with the pebbles and the water and uh climb the willow tree and as I told you before I used to find caterpillars that I could bring home with me because so I thought they were so soft and fuzzy my mom didn't really like that <laughs> um so I I think honestly that was the most impactful experience with nature we went camping a lot as children too so I was always exposed to being outdoors trying fun things in the winter we went
0: cross-country skiing stuff like that so would you describe yourself as a tomboy? Very much. <laughs> <laughs> My mom always says growing up, she was very much so a tomboy and you did horseback riding.
1: Yes, had a horse and talking about climate and taking a horse out when there's tons of snow, it's very challenging and interesting and, <laughs> and peaceful. Like I think being in nature has always been very peaceful for me. Mm-hmm. It's a time to be just by yourself mm-hmm. with nature.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of people would agree with that sentiment.
1: Yeah.
0: How has the conversation around climate change changed over your lifetime?
1: So I don't ever remember learning in school um, about climate change or about, I like, I remember learning about the universe and how it, um, you know, how you need the gravitational pull and all that, but I don't ever remember there being conversations about us harming nature um and the the ramifications of certain processes in our world that are killing nature. Um now, like within the last decade, has that become more of a political conversation. Um there's been a lot more activists and people that speak out on behalf of nature and um so I, I think it's changed in that it just never I never recall it being discussed mm-hmm. until now
0: no i 100% agree i mean it wasn't even discussed when i was in school yeah like i i think we only ever learned how to recycle if that (laughs) yeah and that's and that's even even changed yes in the
1: last decade and what we're able to like we're recycling more you Mm -hmm. know or repurposing materials or whatever Mm -hmm. that you're right that never was a conversation you know
0: and and it was never stressed how important it was yeah and, like, for us, for Earth Day, I think that was the only time we ever learned about climate change. And they didn't even call it that. At the time, they called it global warming, which is yeah, crazy, because yeah. I'm only 21. So in those, like, what, 10 years, a lot has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was the only day we talked about litter and recycling, and that yeah. was it. Yeah.
1: I do remember when you were little, you used to send your packaging home from with your lunch, remember? because they didn't yeah they didn't want to have to recycle it so they would make us like if you had say a plastic bag or you had anything you had to bring back that's why I changed to doing containers in that because they were coming back anyway. so instead of using plastic baggies in that I started to use the containers that we can use over and over you don't remember that eh? that was in grade school
0: Wow, okay, so that, even just, like, the onus of responsibility around climate change in in as small as, like, your school has changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: I wow. totally remember that. So I was like, why are you guys bringing everything back? They're like, well, we're not allowed to throw it out in the garbage or anything anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's why I start thinking about different ways to... Interesting. ...to package your lunch,
0: yeah. I want to talk about that more after this, because I yeah. don't remember that, but that's yeah. interesting. Okay, yeah. Um. how has the climate itself changed over your lifetime? Okay, so... I
1: don't remember summers being as hot as they are now. Like, they're scorching hot. I don't ever remember that. I know that when you're younger, you don't feel the heat the same way. But, I mean, it just never was as hot as it gets now. Um, The humidity factor. And with snow, like, I mean, I grew up kind of in just north of Toronto area. But we don't get the snow that we used to get. There used to be, and believe me, there was no such thing as snow days. You yes. went to school no matter what amount of snow there was, but it was just it, it, nothing compared to now. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean more than than now, mm-hmm. you know. So
0: and now places like England and like Northern Ireland are getting snow, snow days to get snow. And, like, looking at the little amount of snow they have and how they have snow days, I'm jealous. (laughs) Yeah, because they can't can't
1: function. They don't have the equipment to clear the snows or, you know, the sand to put down or whatever, yeah. Yeah. And
0: the reason I mention that is just because my mom was born in, in Northern Ireland, so we have a lot of family there, and so... Our roots to nature also come from, from that part of the
1: world. My cousin will post now, like the snow in the backyard, like, and it is, they love it because they Mm. aren't used to it, whereas Mm. us Canadians are supposed to be, you know, so. Yeah,
0: we're supposed to be little, little snow lovers. Yes. Okay, if you could sum up your opinion of nature and climate change in one sentence, what would you say? I think it's sad.
1: I think that there has been a lot of, um, irresponsible producers and manufacturers, I think I relate it to very much how years ago they would say like in the fifties and sixties the smoking didn't hurt people when they knew it did. Um, it's the same type of thing. What if it's not if it's not affecting the climate right now, what do we care? You know, and that kind of idea of trying to find a cheaper way to manufacture and create goods, like moving away from bottles to plastic. Mm-hmm. And just now we're, we've got all this plastic in the world and we can't get rid of it, mm-hmm. you know, and it's dangerous for, mm-hmm. for nature if it's, you know, in our oceans or whatever. So I think it's just been very disappointing how irresponsible and continue to be. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this thing we're going to have be clean energy or, or uh, you know, better by 2050 or whatever. It's so far away. The 2050 is a long way away. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know why we don't have stricter policies in place to start now like why are we still kind of going well 20 years from now we'll see you know and so i think it's sad i think it's scary i don't know what it's gonna mean for my grandchildren Mm -hmm. you know like are they going to be able to go camping and enjoy the way we did because nature is just vastly being destroyed and ruined you know
0: So, well, it's interesting you say that because earlier on in this podcast, I, I haven't talked to my mom anything about what I've really said, but I talked about Coyote Park. Oh, yeah, and Niagara in the lake. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and I talked about how it's not there anymore. I don't no. know if I, yeah. yeah. Did it's I tell not... you that?
1: And And, like, wildlife, although. It's not fantastic when wildlife's around you that close, like that, <laughs> like coyotes. But you just, you don't see it as much. No. Except the other day when we were driving home and those two deer ran yes. out across the road. Yes. And they were big. They were big deer. Mm-hmm. And it was like, we were like, what is that? And uh-huh. it was kind of, and it, it does make you stop. Mm-hmm. And like the traffic stopped and everything. And you just, you're in awe. Because yeah. nature is so, it's so natural. It's so easy for nature. Yeah. We're the ones that have made it difficult for them
0: that is so powerful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I feel like this has been a very fruitful conversation, very full circle moment. And um, yeah, thank you. Okay.
1: Bye. <laughs>
0: <laughs> As we come to the end of this podcast, I just wanted to touch on a few things that we discussed today. We started out by discussing my story of Coyote Park, which I actually just got a few moments off recording, talking about with my mom, and how I think that was such a foundational moment for me in my environmental knowledge, my environmental activism, and something that I can look back on fondly and appreciate for teaching me about my love for nature. I discussed how my ecological worldview is super complex, and I think everyone should be. I discussed how I think there's two parts to it, how I have this childlike spirit in my love for nature and treating it as a friend. And then I have this older adult version where I'm problem solving and thinking that my environmental science background can really help us, help me at least, to help the world. I discussed two readings from this course, the rise of nature deficit disorder from For Earth's Sake by Stephen Sharper and the article, What is Education For? by Professor David Orr. And how these two readings, I think, relate to both sides of my ecological worldview. I just had a very fruitful conversation with my mom, where we discussed her childhood and um, her roots in loving the environment. And um, just bringing it full circle throughout her lifetime, how climate change and the conversation around it have changed. And now we're here at the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and are inspired to think more deeply about your own ecological worldview. If you're interested to learn more, please check out my Instagram page at everything, E-N-V-E-R-Y-T-H-I-N-G. You can also find the Growing Out podcast and my link tree there. And yeah, I've really enjoyed this podcast. I think this is my favorite episode so far, and I hope you feel the same. So thank you so much and have a great day.